This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Nigella Lawson, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, it's so lovely to be here. I'm going to do a little bit of bragging. I think it's called name dropping. Anyway, whatever it's called, um, <laughs> Nigella and I uh, have really come across paths over the years. And the last time Nigella was in Sydney, you came to my place for dinner. I did. And it was so delicious. And in fact, I thought that when I was writing about creme caramel in my new book and I said I hadn't really thought of it, which is not absolutely true because I ate your incredible creme caramel, but I hadn't thought about making it really. And I think you must have triggered off something in my head because your creme caramel and that beautiful heart-shaped tin that you was just sensational. I mean, it was all good, but I... It's probably the only dessert I ever make. So it's, uh, I've had a lot of practice. Um, Now, let me introduce you because there might be a couple of people in the world that don't know who Nigella Lawson is. I'm sure there are lots. (laughs) I don't know any of them. Nigella has written 11 best-selling cookery books, including the classic How to Eat and How to Be a Domestic Goddess. I mean, I think How to Be a Domestic Goddess is probably my favourite, but it's really hard to choose. Uh, The book (laughs) that inspired a whole new generation of bakers. You know what I think How to Be a Domestic Goddess, uh, what that did for me? I think it allowed me or gave me permission to love cooking. Yeah, I felt that very strongly. You know, I always felt when I was told, I mean, the title was a kind of camp joke. It wasn't really meant to be serious. I felt very much that, you know, at times I was being told it was sort of anti-feminist, which I never, ever felt. I I thought in many ways it was essentially, um, if not anti-feminist, and certainly slightly misogynistic to think that if something had belonged in the traditionally female sphere, it somehow had to be discredited. And I came to baking very late in life and I adored it. And I think it very much feeds into this very human desire for transformation because, I mean, you're a cook and I'm a cook. And if you cook a lot, you you can, even if you don't, you can really have some idea with the raw ingredients what it's going to be. And yet when you bake, it is always... It's, it somehow seems uh, a sort of mysterious, magical, that eggs, sugar, flour, butter turn into a cake. And I think because of that, I, I think there's a particular satisfaction to be gleaned from baking. And I adore baking. In fact, I adore, I adore baking more than I more than I like eating sweet things. I mean, it's not that I don't, but I could bake every day of my life and I probably don't eat a cake every day of my life or even a slice of cake. But I, I do enjoy it. And I 
I felt that it was also a way of talking about the comforts of being in the kitchen. And I, and I think at that stage, you know, I was a young woman and a it, professional. I was a journalist, not a food journalist. And I think so many of us always sort of rushed here and there. And home was just somewhere where you slept in between working. And actually somehow to think, no, I'm here and I'm enjoying this space. I mean, I don't think it's a moral good to cook or bake. But for those of us who enjoy it, it is really a way of decompressing from all those busy, fidgety things that get into your head. Mm, I agree. These books and her TV series have made her a household name around the world. Her latest cookbook is called Cook, Eat, Repeat. Love the title. A delicious and delightful combination of recipes intertwined with narrative essays about food. Nigella says, food for me is a constant pleasure. I like to think greedily about it, reflect deeply on it, learn from it. It provides comfort, inspiration, meaning and beauty. More than just a mantra, cook, eat, repeat is the story of my life. I love that. See, you've always been such a beautiful writer. (laughs) I think cook, eat, repeat is a story of many people's lives this year. Uh, Tell me how it came about. Well, I've been thinking of what I was going to do for my next book for a while. And I always have quite a few ideas sort of in the back burner. But I really, and then this one sort of just came up by itself. And I I wanted to return to a book that had more writing in it. I also felt there were many things I wanted to say about food that weren't couldn't just be expressed within the recipe form, although I think most often the ideas can be. And I wanted it to have a very freeform structure that I could talk about ingredients I loved, or I could talk about ideas about food and prejudices that people have, that they sh- you should be eating a certain thing and not another. I don't know. And actually... I, I had ideas for the title and then I had an idea for a title, which I won't say, which I suddenly read. There was another book coming up of that. And actually, my sister gave me the title and it was so right. And it slotted in exactly into what I wanted to write about, because I also feel that it's the repetition in cooking. I don't mean the same old dishes over and over again, although I love going back to recipes that... Um, I know I will enjoy eating. But it was really more about the fact that because cooking relies on so many small repeated tasks, essentially you're always chopping or stirring, it somehow frees you up. One, you're not having to concentrate that much, but it frees you up to think about flavour. So I think that without, without those, if you like, they're quite mundane, you could say, peeling a potato and waiting for it to, you know, to boil. But I feel it's because of those mundane little tasks that that cooking relies on, it somehow frees up the creative side as well. And I think the balance between uh, routine and spontaneity is in a way, the key to cooking, and it's also the key to life. And I always feel that what is true in the kitchen is true out of the kitchen too. Oh, for sure. Now, I empathise with you guys because I know that you're in a strict lockdown and we're recording this, of course, uh, during uh, a pandemic. And we were that too. 
Uh, we were very early on. We were, I think it was six to eight mm. weeks. Uh, we've been very lucky now that we've had zero cases for the last couple of days. And you know how much food means to me. But you know what happened to me in the first couple of days? And I don't know whether we've spoken about this. I lost the inspiration because for me, because uh, I live alone, food was about people. And food for me was cooking for my, you know, great nephews, for my mm. nieces, for my family. And because I couldn't have that, I fell into a really deep sadness and I couldn't motivate myself to cook because cooking for myself at the time just wasn't working. And I really, I, it wasn't good for me at all. And my niece, Sarah, she came up with this idea and I don't know whether it was specifically for me or the rest of the family and she's not a cook. She said that we, she put some names in the hat and everybody got a partner and you had to cook for that person. And then we would do contactless deliveries and then that mm. sparked, that gave it back to you. Yes, me. I understand that. I understand that. I mean, I felt for the first two weeks of lockdown, I all I wanted to eat was carbs. Mm. I just wanted, like, I had a baked potato at lunch. I had a bread, pasta, chocolate. Uh, and I didn't, I, I was quite distracted and disoriented and I didn't really eat meals. And I'm actually normally not a grazer at all. And very much a meal person. But then I did do the same as you. I, when I cooked, like if I made a loaf of bread, I would you know, often just cut it in half and put half, you know, on the doorstep of a neighbour. Mm. And I also would make food for people who live nearby enough that they could just pick it up or had cars. I don't have a car, so I couldn't, um, you know, drop things off to people. And I did enjoy that. But actually, unlike you, I'm afraid, I really began to enjoy just cooking for myself. Now, I, I often cook for myself and I do live alone. And, but this it was, certainly was the longest stretch of my life that I hadn't actually had people in and was feeding them. But I did like that. And I began really to look forward to my supper in the evening and thinking what shall I cook and you know my family are real fish phobes and so I, I don't really eat fish when they're around so I ate masses of fish anchovies with everything yes. and I enjoyed that but I also quite enjoyed this feeling that I was making myself something that gave me so much pleasure and I felt so free pottering about and in fact I often say to people when they if they say how do I get more confident about cooking just cook for yourself yeah, because you don't really worry about whether it's going to be okay or not because it's just you. Obviously, it's a disappointment if it isn't. But you, I think it makes you enjoy the process more because you, there's no stress attached to it. Mm. So in many ways, it's a great luxury, I think, just cooking for yourself. And I do like it. I mean, I like feeding people as well. But I have grown to, I've grown to be so grateful for that. And I feel that it gave me, I was also testing recipes, you see, because I was a bit behind with the book. And then suddenly I had to, you know, finish it and under strange conditions. But, and I, I felt so grateful to the book because it kept me company because it gave me such a focus in the days, which were amorphous and, strange you know that you couldn't really tell one day for another but it also fed me mm, I agree and with I that changed the book slightly because of the pandemic I mean the title predates it although it's hard to believe that but I revisited some of the recipes I'd already done and put notes in the recipe intro for how to make that that recipe just for one mm. and I added more recipes for one I I I felt that it was 
there is something I, I, I think, in a way, I s- spoke to so many of my friends who, you know, suddenly were having real focus on what they were going to have for dinner every evening, and and they enjoyed that. But actually, I felt that after a while, that I think they did get quite tired, and I never got tired of <laughs> cooking for myself. It, it taught me a lot. Mm. Do you know what I think? It did. I snapped out of it real quick, so maybe two or three weeks later, uh, and I cook sourdough bread. And I, I, I've been doing that pre-COVID, but I, a lot of people ask me how to cook sourdough during COVID, so I shared that information. Mm. But what I found when I clicked back into cooking is it gave my day structure and purpose. Mm. I think that's so important. Uh, and I think that the... I, I think it's so many things. I think cooking gives structure, which is essential. Structure, sustenance, and pleasure. Mm. The three things that were so essential. And they're always essential, but we really realized how essential because there wasn't an awful lot else going on. But I also think that it's so understandable that when the outside world is swirling about with unknowns and fearfulness, the small amount of order you're imposing on ingredients, which is what cooking is, somehow makes one feel safer. It's a small thing, but it's something it's like something you can rely on. And it's so it's I think cooking, I sort of hesitate to use words like mindfulness, but i'm I'm quite a fidgety brained person. And yet when I'm cooking, especially if I'm cooking just for myself or, you know, after lockdown when I had my children here, I sort of felt very much that all those thoughts fizzing about in my head were were stilled because your intelligence or whatever you want to call it is has to be focused in your fingertips for the feel of a dough under your hands or the smell because um, you know how when you cook things, sometimes the smell alters a bit at, at different stages of cooking and the sound of an onion in uh, sort of spluttering away in the pan. And that so, is so all-encompassing mm-hmm. that it really is such a welcome escape from that rondo of worries in your head. I totally agree. I mean, I think it's always true, but I think this year it's been essential. Absolutely. I want to talk about where uh, your writing started and what led you to here. And I know it started with uh, the book How to Eat, which we mentioned in the introduction. But to me now, How to Eat seems to be a precursor to cook, eat and repeat. Talk to me firstly about how you came to writing a cookbook. And do you agree that it's a precursor? I think you're absolutely right. It is a precursor completely right. Well, it was a strange thing because I never meant to write a cookbook. I mean, as you know, I'm not a chef. I haven't trained in anything. But when I was younger, I thought I wanted to be a novelist. I thought I wanted to write a novel. And I had a wonderful agent who died a couple of years ago called Ed Victor. And I was having lunch with him one day. And I had said that John, my late husband, had said to me, you should write a book about food. At that stage, I didn't really know it was going to have recipes. You write a book about food and call it How to Eat because you're so confident in the decisions you make about what you think goes with what and what you like eating and and you know why you like them. And people often don't feel that confident. And I hadn't really thought about it because I didn't think of it in that way. I just knew that that there were certain 
ways of eating I liked and certain ways I didn't. And I was quite horrified at how the professional kitchen was intruding in the home in the sense that I love restaurants, but I don't think we cook like them at home. And I felt it was somehow making home cooking into the poor relation. And so I mentioned this to Ed and I said, John thinks I should do this, but I really don't want to. And he said, no, it's a great idea. You must, you must. And I went, I don't want to write a cookbook. And he said, um, think of it like before, a, you know, before a you know pianist, you know, plays a symphony, he's going to be, you know, practicing scales. She's going to be, you know, doing an awful lot of playing of more minor pieces and you should just do that. And I said, oh, I don't know. And he said, I want you to go home now. Before you, when you get home, before you've even taken off your coat, I want you to write to me, write me a sort of letter about what you think this book could be and fax it to me. This is you know, such, such a long time ago. <laughs> and I did. And then when I started writing it, and I put, it, put that off for a long time, I felt... I'm not a novelist. This is where my voice is. This is what I want to write about. Because I think in writing about food, you are writing about life too. You are writing about ideas. You are writing about human beings and how they interact. It's just in a different way than if you were writing a novel. And I thought it would be just that one. I didn't think, you know, I was a journalist at the time. Uh, I mean, I'm not a food journalist, although I did review restaurants. I had just started or had started some time ago, but mostly I was an op-ed columnist and I did wrote book reviews as well. But I just thought, this is what I want to do, but I won't do any more. It was just this one-off. And then I had the idea for Domestic Goddess while I was doing um, How to Eat because I did do some baking for How to Eat and I hadn't done before. And then I became sort of evangelical. Because I, you know, I was in my late thirties. I hadn't ever, hadn't really ever baked. And then I carried on, and I, but I got to a stage when, as much as I enjoy what I do, I felt I wanted to return to my roots, if you like, as a food writer. And I, and I knew that that's what I needed to do. And in a way, when you do books, you can't think about, you know, what would be popular or successful you know people kept saying to me you should just do a vegetable book you should just do a vegan book now I love I do a lot of vegan recipes and I can know so many in this book but I can really only write books that come out of my life and I'm not vegan I mean I cook for vegans a lot or did when I still saw people and I don't eat meat or fish every day myself but nevertheless I'm not a focus group kind of a writer I can only do what I feel like doing and this is what I felt like doing I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Um, I want to go back to how to eat. And I only discovered in doing my research um, for our conversation today that it's available in an audio book and you're reading it. I mean, you can't imagine the excitement I had when I downloaded it. <laughs> I don't know why it took me so long to find it. And so I've been listening to it and, uh, you know, I love audio books and I know you do too. But the difference between how to eat and how to be domestic goddess, in a way, one was illustrated that we, you know, pictorial, yes. beautifully presented. How was that experience? Because it would have been quite different to how, how to eat, isn't it? Yes, it was. And in many ways, it felt enjoyable to be doing something that was collaborative. At, at that stage, you know, I think it was publishers were, you know, had, were quite open to all sorts of ideas. And I said, but then I want Petrina Tinsley you know, the Australian food yes. photographer, to do this book. And they approached her and she came over for it. And I always felt sorry for her because it was, we did the shoot in like February or March. It was freezing in this very grey studio. I'd mostly now do the books at home, but then it was in a studio somewhere near an industrial park and the light was dismal. And I think she looked a bit shocked at first, but it was so <laughs> lovely doing that. And in fact, I never quite change how I work. So, you know, there's a shoot list and you have to, and I had an assistant then. I didn't have an assistant for how to eat. So I had someone who came in and, you know, helped me test. And I'm also, it's much easier. It's very hard to write down as you cook. So if I was cooking, she could be scribbling down 350 grams of flour or whatever, because I'd say, this is what I'm doing. And there was always like a very strict shot list for each day. But I don't really like being contained. And so I would suddenly make something completely new and different that wasn't on the shop list and that hadn't been a recipe before. And I felt that gave the book life as well. But I really enjoyed doing it. And I actually, since then, I one of the things that I've adored and grown to love more and more is the physical making of a book. Because I'm used to, you know, I started off in publishing, then I went into journalism, where even though I did have a bit to do with page layout in this, in so far as I might discuss it with the designer, I, it really is just, it's just in your head and it's an abstract thing. And I've always used the same designer for my books. And she's wonderful. Like when I did Kitchen, I said, could we have the, the print rather than black, just a dark brown? It may not be noticeable, but I think it'll give a warmth and it makes me feel more, it's more like my kitchen table. And so I always, she's so wonderful. She's like, you know, when you work with people who are really good at what they do, they don't have that ego that stops them listening to you and the same thing with working with really good photographers they don't mind if I look down the barrel of their lens they don't mind if I say oh I want to do it like this you know I don't get a food stylist to do the styling um there was one photographer I worked with once and she was incredibly neat and she at first slightly twitched when I went near her with my messiness but after a while she would say to me can you come and mess this up which just means plate it Love and that. I enjoy that collaboration. I really do. And 
I think writing is solitary mm. and it has to be. But in a, in a way, you feel connected to people when you write because it is, it's a form of talking to people about food and the idea that something they're going to share in. But the actual sort of getting to work with people you admire whose eye or talents can actually turn a manuscript into a book is incredible. Mm, it is. It's actually. extraordinary. It, I really, really value that process. Yeah, I do too. And the end result, wow, it's so exciting. I want to talk a little bit about your kitchens and TV. So tell me about how you came to TV. And is it always in your kitchen or are they... I haven't filmed in my kitchen for a very long time. Ah, okay. um, but the we have we build a set in a studio that's based on my kitchen, although we do sort of paint it differently each time. Right. It's too small and I I don't know that I could have people around all yeah. the time, but you're quite limited on camera angles and you're ve- I live in central London and you're very limited in terms of the time because of the noise. Because it's yeah. forever. So I was asked to do my first book was serialized in one of the Sunday supplements. And the photographs were quite kitchen camp. And I was asked if I would do uh, TV. I mean, I had done TV, but not, you know, that sort of thing. I'd occasionally gone on book review programs or been a, you know, talking head on one of those sort of late night panel political, I don't know what shows. Done bits and bobs. I hadn't really thought I wanted to do that. So they said, will you do a cookery? You know, would you try, would you want to do a, a program? And I said, I really wouldn't. Thank you. And then they, you know, they persisted and I, they, it was very good. So I said, look, if I can do it at home, because at that stage I had a baby and a toddler and um, a terminally ill husband. So I didn't want to go out, which is why I started you know, filming at home. If I can film it at home and if I can do it without a script, I'll do it. But I'm not a performer. I can't before I just have to you know, talk. And they said, yes. And so I did it. And so I've carried on. And that's really how I carried on doing it. Do you enjoy um, it? I enjoy bits of it. I get quite um, frightened beforehand. But then I get frightened before I write. I mean, anything worth doing is frightening. And in fact, so many things that, you know, aren't worth doing are frightening. So, you know, that's no reason not to do thing I again you see what I love about doing the television is that I love the camaraderie of crew life I always work with the same people it's a very small crew and I feel very safe and with like I'm with family mm. and I love that and also I like feeding them it was harder this time because we weren't strictly speaking you know allowed to feed them but sometimes if something hadn't been you know the home ec on it or the foods I don't know what you call it there who would then be able to portion things up but I enjoy that and also that you know I just love I, I'm a, I'm just an enthusiast so it enables me to to express that enthusiasm, it's just another way of doing it. And I suppose it brings people to my books. And it's impossible to write a book without really wanting people to read it. Mm. So in that sense, I do. But I do, I mean, it, there are, I, I sometimes feel this weight of expectation because you see it, it's like being in a one-woman play every day because there's no one else. If I'm feeling a bit tired, no one else can get up there and do it. And I feel a lot of people are relying on me and I don't want to let them down. Mm. I mean, uh, there are times when I just feel like I haven't got a thought in my head. But actually, once once the director says action, 
I'm so interested in what I'm doing that there's thoughts come. Mm. And then I have, we have far too much material, obviously. Mm. It was different filming this time, obviously, because we had to keep our distance from one another and we couldn't have eating scenes. I had to make the ultimate sacrifice and eat everything myself. <laughs> and um, But it was a bit of a culture shock for us all, having been very isolated, suddenly being all back together. Yeah. I liked how you make the lemon risotto, which I've got to say, I went ahead and made it just after I watched that series. And then you mm-hmm. said, technically, it's a recipe for two. <laughs> and then you plated it up and ate it as well. Mm-hmm. You could be eating it yourself. I love that. I love the honesty yeah. that comes with it. Well, there's no point doing something and pretending to be someone else. No. I mean, the only thing I would say about the TV series is, of course, there are people there whose job it is to make me look better than I do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I'm not allowed to look quite so messy and bedraggled as I do in real life. But otherwise, it is really just, you know, the food I like, the way I cook and why I like it. And language interests me. You know, I, I think one of the reasons I started writing about food is because I've always been interested in in language. I, I, I read languages at university and literature and to me, I when I read a book I loved, I experience the sentences a bit like I'm tasting food. I like the taste of them. And so, in a way, it's just another challenge when you talk about food. I think you have to use language that evokes why you like it. It isn't just about how many grams of flour or butter in a recipe. It's really about what it's bringing, what it's doing. And I think that it's the duty of anyone writing about food to fire the imagination as well as uh, be practical. Everything has to be practically reliable, but it also has to feed in another way. I think you're writing... And particularly, you know, how sometimes or very often you write those little descriptions or paragraphs before a recipe. To me, they're inspiration. Because sometimes I'll look at a recipe and I'm never going to make that. That's not for me. I don't know. I don't like pie nuts maybe Mm. or I don't like raisins or whatever. I mean, I actually do like those things. But then I read what you say about them or what you say about the recipe. Oh, I think I might try that. So for me, your food writing is an inspiration to to actually cook. I'm so pleased you said it because in a way what I'm trying to do is trying to evoke the experience of eating something before someone's made it so they have an idea a bit about, and again, it's about why I love it. And a friend of mine once said to me, someone who doesn't consider herself a cook much, she says, you always get me into the kitchen before I've quite realized I'm going in there. And I was very pleased with that. But mostly it's just really about sharing the things I love in life. And that's exactly the same as talking about books or anything. I mean, there's so much in the world that uh, people carping, criticizing, and that drags on down such a lot. From the time we're teenagers, I think, I remember, you know, that being sort of full of enthusiasm was thought of as very uncool. You know, how they were meant to be snarly and detached. I could never be snarly and detached. And I see no value in it. I think that I'm always grateful if someone suggests eating something I hadn't thought of, or even if I knew about it, just to remind me, or, you know, recommends a book that I love or something on television I don't know it doesn't matter but just recommendations and people conveying why they love something even if in the end you don't agree is actually kind of lights you up in a very important way do you know and you just need to sit back and take this but um you are so beloved and or beloved and I think 
I've thought about this a lot in the last couple of days in my thinking about my conversation with you. I think it's because you're so authentic and true to what you do. Many years ago, um, and I we hadn't met then, but I attended a event back in the days when we had events. That was 900 people. Mm. I think it was here in Sydney. I can't remember. 900 people came to hear you talk about food. And the women in the room, there were so many women in the room, and the, a lot of them at around question time, questions your use of cream and butter and fat. And, you know, I thought it was, I mean, I'm, I was kind of amused by that. But anyway, but the men, and I don't know if you remember this, they're like, give me more, give me more. But one man stood up and he gave, he just said a number. I can't remember what it was, like 0413241344. And you said, oh, what's that? And he said, that's my number, call me. And <laughs> He was sitting with his wife and family. But I thought, I have not seen a cook or a writer have such an impact on people's lives as I saw in that room that day. And you have continued to do it over the years. And I think it's because of the passion and because it's genuine. Well, I can only say things, I think. And I also try and... I feel for me, the connection I have with people is very valuable. And mm. I felt that extraordinarily so this year because I spent, and probably because I was meant to be writing. So, of course, I was always looking for distractions. I spent quite a lot of time on Twitter answering people's queries about cooking and food. And if they didn't have this ingredient, normally I would just answer about my own recipes because I don't feel qualified to talk generally. But, you know, it was a, people were in desperate straits. I wanted to help. And also, I like being part of the conversation. And also, a lot of people were talking about other things to do with cooking, you know, that were lonely cooking for themselves. Or, And I really felt so, um, it was so important to make that connection. And for myself, as much mm-hmm. as anything else. And I think that's what doing what I do has given me. And I never thought that in the beginning. But the connection with people has been something... Uh, I don't know, You one always sounds like a complete mug talking about it, like it is a privilege and it is a blessing, but it also feels um, like it carries on going round. It's never, you know, whether you know people in real life or virtually, I I think things never really work if they only go one way. I think there has to be a genuine sense of connection for it to have any real pull and it certainly feels like that to me but it's an extraordinary thing as well you know there might be a cake I gave a recipe for that I made when my children were little and you know someone will say oh I've been doing your chocolate Malteser cake every year since my son was four and he's 18 this year and it feels like oh my god to be part of other people's families and I suppose that's that's really what we need in life so much of life is about making connection one way or another and that's what why we read and that's why we need art and that's why we it's so it can be so uplifting just even just saying good morning to someone on the street that you don't know you need all those things so for me it's just been been something that's I'm really grateful for let's put it that way 
Well, I mean, you should be because honestly, it's a career, a formidable career, I would say, but also at the same time that, you know, you are accessible and you are genuine, as I said earlier. Now, I just wanted to finish off with some of my favourite recipes and I can't remember where this recipe came from. might have been how to eat. And this is when I realise that preparing a meal doesn't have to be complicated. So, you have roast chicken or leftover or rotisserie chicken or whatever, mm. and you make that into a spaghetti with pine nuts, olive oil. Yes, and that comes from Claudia Roden. It's uh, from the it. Venetian ghetto. And I think in a way, one of the things I love as well about writing about food is I can write about other food writers and I can say, I can talk about the genealogy of a recipe because it, always, it nearly always comes from somewhere. And I, a chef has to pretend that he or she is always, it's a novelty or you, they seek after novelty. But sometimes you, it's, you're also, as a cook or as someone who writes about food, you're also a curator in some sense, and that's a rather pretentious word. But I, I love sharing my enthusiasm about other writers too. And often I might change a recipe. That one I didn't, but often I might change a recipe enormously. But I still like to say where I first got the idea mm. and how it then... You know, and I suppose as well that gives the reader the freedom to just to change any recipe I might give. Yeah, and you know with that recipe too, you can adapt it. And unlike a lot of yes. recipes, you can adapt it to pretty much any kind of protein you want to put in. Another favourite too, which I, I used to make a lot and I'm making less and you'll know why, is the chocolate cherry trifle. can't remember what book yes. that was. <laughs> is that not the best, most decadent dessert ever? <laughs> no, I do you know, and I I felt at the time I don't I felt compelled to do it because <laughs> I realised that I have to say that that chocolate custard in it by itself is pretty good. Oh, uh, I love I love a trifle, I and mean, you do need a lot of people to eat it, but I do love a trifle. Now that I enjoy doing that, I mean, yeah. I enjoy all of them. Yeah, yeah, and I think too cherries. Uh, I mean, I adore cherries in just about everything, but it is also one of the the wow factors in in pulling that dessert out. I mean, it's so simple to make, yet once you put that on the table, you've won them over, right? It's so impressive. Well, <laughs> well I think also just you know it's going to delight rather yeah. than impress, and that's <laughs> the important thing. But I think so much in cooking, don't you think this, that people confuse a recipe being difficult with a with it being time uh, yes. consuming because with a trifle it is time consuming because there are different stages but not not one of those stages is complicated and I think often you have to say yes you need this it's like making lasagna it's not yes. difficult it is time consuming and you, and I think it's very important always to to establish that there is a difference yeah absolutely and I I, I mean I don't think that any recipe I've read of yours or, or, or cooked of yours has been complicated at all. No, well, I wouldn't be able to cook it if it were, let's be frank. <laughs> let's be frank. All right, Miss Dangela <laughs> Lawson. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's I've so loved it. <laughs> it's a shame you're not here. I can't wait to be here. back. You are. I know, I can't wait to be back. Can, can I put in a plea for the creme caramel heart again? Absolutely, you're on. Sydney. You're on. Promise? <laughs> yes, okay. absolutely. Thanks, darling. It's lovely to talk to you. You too. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's I've enjoyed it more than I can say. Sorry to interrupt all the time, even though I interrupt myself as well as you. <laughs> I'm often accused of that, so believe me, I don't mind. <laughs> you take care, my friend. You too. Bye-bye. 
If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.